Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, it's Annika and thanks for tuning into this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm really excited to be chatting about orofacial myofunctional disorders today. To be honest, I'm someone who tends to refer my little ones with an OMD to a speech pathologist who specialises in this space, but I am really keen to learn more and to explore how I can develop my clinical skills. I'm so delighted to be chatting to Vince Borg today. Vince has 40 years of clinical experience across both paediatric and adult settings and is founder of Box Hill Speech Pathology Clinic, one of Melbourne's longest running speech pathology clinics. Vince is also a trained orofacial myologist and has worked collaboratively with orthodontists, specialised dentists and ENTs for over 20 years in managing a variety of orofacial myofunctional disorders. Thank you so much for joining me today, Vince. Thank you for inviting me, Annika. I've been really looking forward to this conversation and I think probably a nice place to start would be just to ask you what an orofacial myofunctional disorder actually is. Very good question. It's quite a long word or series of words. I think I stumbled on it. (laughs) Uh, So orofacial myofunctional disorders, or let's just call them OMDs, are really patterns involved in oral and orofacial musculature that interfere with the normal growth and development or function of orofacial structures, or maybe that call attention to themselves or have an impact on other structures. So examples could include things like um, thumb sucking uh, or digit sucking, um, a routine position of open mouth posture with tongue forward. Um, It could be a tongue thrust swallow. So when you're swallowing, your tongue pushes forward or any other harmful oral habits. So they can be related to or contribute to other health conditions or dental conditions, if you like, or disorders. So so that's really mostly about orofacial myofunctional disorders, OMD. Is it okay to speak about a couple of specific presentations? So I know you just mentioned then um, about anterior open bites. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit on what that is? Right, okay, so, well, we all know what an open bite is, okay, where the the top front teeth, usually the top front six teeth and the top and the lower front six teeth don't meet and there's uh, almost like an opening between the teeth. And so these open bites are actually quite difficult for dental practitioners being orthodontists or, or dentists that have a specialty in that area to actually treat. And a lot of people want those teeth 
to come together, okay, to give them better closure or to be able to eat apples or something like that properly. And so that's that's one of the major areas for um, orofacial myology disorders, that we see lots of kids who will be tongue thrusting, which helps contribute to that uh, open bite. And the jury's still out on whether it is caused by the tongue thrust or whether it's something that's genetic or whether it is predisposition to that. And so there's lots of reasons why people might have an uh, an open bite, and that's really for my dental colleagues to really talk about. But um, those open bites are probably the most common things that we would do or that I would do in terms of orofacial myology treatment. Um, of course, if kids have got um, dummies or chronic thumb sucking, which is really putting a lot of pressure on those upper anterior teeth and they're using that quite extensively, that would be really the first port of call, but we're sort of getting on to treatment there. But it's those sorts of areas. Um, and I think we've all seen kids come into the clinic for all sorts of other speech sound disorders and, and things, but they might have this chronically open mouth with uh, tongue forward, maybe resting on their lower lip and, you know, chronic mouth breathing, have a really narrow philtrum. If you remember, that's the little cupid's bow between your nose and your top lip and just this constant opening and breathing through your mouth. So, uh, whether that's really because of uh, an open bite or whether it's some other reason, they could have all sorts of restrictions in their nasal airway or they could have very large tonsils and adenoids which doesn't allow them to get good nasal breathing. Um, they could have a dummy for a long time. It really can be quite a number of reasons for that. Mm, I'm really interested in that sort of early intervention space, we often get little ones that maybe aren't presenting necessarily with speech issues from their anterior open bite, but they are, as you say, chronic thumb suckers or extensive dummy users. What sort of advice should we be giving families in regards to that in those real early years when these kids first present to speech pathology? Yeah, really good question because it's an often asked question and um, I think we've often thought about the dummy being the dark dummy, you know, we don't really need dummy. But um, I think uh, if you've been a parent whose child has had a dummy, it makes quite a difference to uh, one's sleep and uh, one's sanity at times. But um, look, you know, in the US they call them pacifiers, which is I think is a better name because they do help pacify that sucking reflex is quite strong. And wouldn't it be nice to know what the evidence is for when we should remove that or when it stops uh, having an impact perhaps on their teeth? And they're really unclear about it. I, I think the uh, orthodontists and dental associations would probably say from a dental point of view that thumb sucking and dummy sucking should really be stopped by around four or five years of age, certainly when they're starting to develop some of their second dentition, which is you know further on than five. And um, 
thumb sucking, I think, as speech pathologists, we've, we know that um, if kids are trying to talk with their thumbs in their mouths or fingers in their mouth, that's not a good idea. So I can't find any evidence, though, that the thumb sucking or the digit sucking really has any uh, cause of um, speech sound disorders, which we can talk about a bit later. But uh, I think, look, most of us would agree that the earlier that can be removed, the better, but that is quite a difficult thing for some Mm, children. Absolutely, and some families, as you said, they're just their capacities to be able to manage that aren't always there at that time. (laughs) And it goes uh, even longer. I mean, I certainly have children in their school years, in their late primary years, and even young teenagers that still suck their fingers and suck, suck their thumbs and... Uh, and even some adults at times, you know, which have quite an impact on the dentition. So it's it's quite a difficult thing. It is, it um, is. So I am interested, I know you just mentioned then about speech production. What do you see as some of the impacts of OMDs on speech production when these little ones or adults or teenagers present to you? Uh, again, you often see children who have uh, OMDs and who have... Uh, more tongue forward posture, if you like, with their speech sounds. So all the alveolar sounds of T, D, N, L, S and Z, they would often be produced more incidentally. But again, I'm not sure if that is the OMD or whether it it is, because it's quite a common error, as we know, uh, with younger children. But it's certainly when, if you think about the the muscle memory and the tongue resting posture of your tongue resting on your lower lip to elevate your tongue, retract your tongue to get those alveolar sounds, it's going to be a little bit harder to do. So they would be the most common errors. But I was trying to work out how many of the kids that I would see with tongue thrust who would then end up having some like interdental S's and things like that. And these are, you know, we're talking about six-year-olds, seven, eight-year-olds. And my my clinical guess is it's probably about 30 or 40% of those kids would have that. Now, whether that's a speech sound disorder they want to do something about or not, but that's a different question. But uh, it's, it's certainly there, but I... I couldn't really say it's because of their uh, OMD. So uh, that's really the uh, what you have to take into account for those speech sound disorders. Mm. Are you finding that the kids that do present to you, are they coming from other speech pathologists with a speech sound lens or do you get a lot of referrals from that dental space where... Um, speech sound is not necessarily the the main concern, but it's teeth positioning, etc. Uh, more the latter, really, Annika. It's uh, so I've been doing um, orofacial myology treatment for about twenty years, and virtually all of my referrals are from uh, orthodontists and uh, dental practitioners who do orthodontic treatment. Because remember, it's not. Dentists can still do orthodontic treatment, but uh, there's a bit of um, disagreement, I think, in their profession between orthodontists and dentists on that habit, on that process. But I'll I'll leave that for for them, for them, for them <laughs> yeah. to work out. Uh, 
but um, but certainly I would get referrals from orthodontists and uh, and dentists who are primarily concerned with their teeth straightening and uh, dentition. Probably in the last uh, two or three years, there's been more referrals from speech pathologists who see these children with uh, these chronic open mouth problems and uh, wonder what we can do about that, So, which is a, a separate issue. So, yeah. I have thought that. I have thought that. <laughs> yes, yeah. So maybe we could start moving into this intervention space. And I'm just so fascinated to find out what approaches you use. Well, uh, the, the treatment of that in terms of orofacial myology is really to help establish correct respiratory rest positioning of your mouth. Okay, so as... That the, the most natural position for your mouth is to be with your lips closed, your teeth slightly apart, your tongue resting up on your um, on your palate, and good nose breathing, good good airflow through your nose. I think most uh, of the medical profession and dental profession would say that would be the most common natural ability for your mouth to harmonize all the the different muscle functions so speech pathologists have an amazing amount of knowledge in terms of physiology and anatomy of mouths anyway and so we have got a lot of skills already to do those sorts of activities and um, you know whether you do all sorts of little lip exercises or tongue strengthening exercises um, getting the right jaw positioning which is really about thinking about your masseter muscles um, and mentalis coming together so you really want those muscles to be really in in just their natural position Um, so that would be the the primary aspect of uh, orofacial myology treatment is just to normalize those sorts of areas at the start. Mm, I, I'm sort of thinking in my head that there's a lot of practice needed to correct some of these. Am I right in thinking that? That the kids that present to you are needing to practice a lot at home in between sessions, or is that not right? Well, yeah, welcome to speech therapy. <laughs> <laughs> practice and dosage of treatment I think we're all talking about that a little bit more these days aren't we um and how long should the treatment be and and effects like that so yes there is and there's no real mandated uh sessions like that at the moment it's really just our clinical experience there's very few sort of clinical trials that looking at the best evidence of how long the session should be, what you actually do in therapy. So there's quite a lot of uh, disparity between what people do. But yeah, I guess a lot of things for, if we're changing uh, orofacial patterns, that we do want that that training. But we also want the self-awareness, like we have for many areas in speech pathology as well, the self-awareness and the self-monitoring. So, you know, I think it's, it really, you can't be doing these sorts of things with very young children because they're just not in that uh, cognitive kind of space. So, yeah, a lot of um, experience like that, a lot of practice and a lot of parental support, of course. Uh, so, but also to make sure that, 
you're, you're ticking the boxes that kids can breathe through their nose really well, that there's nothing medically that, or ENT-wise that they need to do. So you have to really communicate with your um, ENT colleagues with that. Um, so remember, lips together closed gently is um, presumes that you can breathe through your nose quite easily. So we have to make sure that that's fine. And... Um, and we know that breathing through your nose is a wonderful thing for your body because it purifies the air, humidifies the air and warms the air. So it's fantastic for the oxygen uptake. So, yeah, there's, they would be those sorts of exercises that we would do in terms of establishing the correct rest position. And then if they do have a tongue thrust, how to teach them to do a new swallow uh, which is not a tongue thrust swallow if they happen to have that. Mm. And is that a tricky thing to teach? It is. It is. It really is. And again, as speech pathologists, we have a lot of knowledge in that area. Um, although most of the work, obviously, that speech pathologists do with swallowing is from the neuro point of view and that reflex. But we do know the oral phase there. So we really want to have children to be aware of taking food or fluid into their mouth and getting the right uh, position of their jaw, their tongue, their lips before they start swallowing. And then to be uh, pushing their tongue really hard against their maxilla to start off the reflex that way, uh, rather than pushing the tongue forward. And um, it's, um, it's quite tricky for kids to be doing that. I could imagine even with your six and seven year olds, that would be quite tricky. It is. So obviously parental support. So we always yeah, have parents there. But, um, you know, we swallow a lot of times a day. Do you know how many times a day we swallow? Oh, Monica? my goodness. No, I don't. Can I give you a ballpark? Yeah. Uh, ballpark. I'm going to be way out, but 5,000. <laughs> Good try. Good try. Divide that by 10. <laughs> oh, don't give me a maths question. <laughs> Multiply by two fifths and divide by seven. No, no, no. Uh, it's about it's about eight hundred swallows right. a day. Yeah. yeah, and most of that is when we're swallowing saliva when we're resting. So that whole rest posture is so important, um, and that tongue is you know pretty strong, pretty strong, when it's pushing. So. Um, Dentists and orthodontists are really looking at this space quite um, significantly because of the their you know, clients come to them or patients come to them with wanting to have nice straight teeth. Don't we all want to do that? So, and there's you know obviously there's lots of reasons why people don't, but uh, this is one aspect. So there's really close collaboration with orthodontists and. Um, um, orofacial orthopaedic sort of uh, dentist so are you finding that you're seeing these kids before they get braces or is it something that you see whilst they've got braces on uh both both um again years ago it used to be uh after they had braces and then they relapsed perhaps and then came back so they might have all the braces and then they're got a tongue thrust, they get a, a relapse of their anterior open bite, then they'd see another orthodontist who says, I think you, this child's got a tongue thrust you should see. 
somebody to fix that first. So that would be in the older sort of children. But nowadays, it's dentistry is doing a lot of more interceptive work earlier on, so seven or eight. Now, again, whether that's what the right thing, but there's some discussion about that with dentists as well. But uh, yeah, so there is uh, more in that area. And even, I guess, you know, there's more health awareness and health information out there for people that people know about, you know, dentition and teeth and, and the health of teeth. And so they're really after that uh, dental care from an earlier point of view, but it's often because of the dental care. Mm. Mm. I know you've mentioned to me that um, in regards to some of the evidence base for the interventions, that a lot of that is now sort of falling out of that orthodontic and dental space. Well, yeah, the like the evidence base for orofacial myology generally is controversial, let's say, and it's limited in terms of its research. Um, most of the studies, if you look at, and um, ASHA, you know, the American Speech Hearing Association has quite a good uh, amount of uh, articles regarding orofacial myology. They have 23 scientific papers looking at that. So it's a really good, and they've got this really cool thing, the evidence map and all sorts of things. So it's, it's really quite good. But you will have divergent views from one study that shows it has terrific results to another study that shows... Uh, very poor results or not significant results and you know if you look at all the studies they could have limitations in terms of sample size or what they're measuring and things like that all the the usual sorts of things that which is difficult with research but um, the I think the best evidence comes from the the orofacial myology treatment and orthodontic treatment together collaboratively. And if you look at their results, they seem to have really good evidence that the maintenance of, again, um, anterior open bites, because they are the most researched areas, would have um, some really welcoming results from that as well. And I guess you could look at the clinical aspect of what sort of relapse do patients have because uh, I tell you what if you've just um, had a whole lot of orthodontic treatment with plates expanders and um, braces and you go back to your orthodontist and you've got a, a big anterior open bite back again you'd be coming back and they would be coming back to me and say Vince what did you do what did you do so so we don't get too many uh, recurring back which is which is lovely and Again, I mean, that's not a study, but I've been doing this for a while, as I said. So um, so it's really coming from the dentist who, uh, you know, and when you look at studies from the, the dental literature, which is quite different to speech pathology literature. So they measure um, teeth, shape, growth, patterns quite, quite intricately. And... Um, so that's where it's really coming from. But there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for speech pathologists to get involved in that research space. It would be terrific. Um, I guess they don't get involved in it because they just don't know so much about it. But we have a lot to contribute in terms of the what we know about 
uh, oral awareness and oral positioning. So it would be good to be doing that. So if anybody wants to take up some more research, go for it. Yeah, the call um, is out. <laughs> yeah. I know you've mentioned a couple of times about other professionals. So you've mentioned orthodontists, specialised dentists, ENTs, respiratory physicians. And it sounds like there's really a critical relationship in this space with working with those professionals. I'm just wondering, how do you go about that? Are you reporting back um, as soon as you see a little one? Are you continually updating these professionals on the progress of therapy? How often are you communicating with them? Um, Quite often, actually, but that's part of that is just my practice that I get back to people that refer people very, very frequently. And I think orthodontists want to know what you've found quite clearly at the start. It's also important to know where they are in the orthodontic journey as well. They may be pre pre um, expander plates, they may be post expander plates, they may have um, tongue cribs, they may have braces that they're going to do and each orthodontist will have their own way of doing that. Some will not want to do treatment beforehand before you do your treatment and there are there are many children that I see where the orthodontist will not do any intervention until um, I think that they are not tongue thrusting anymore and they've got good oral rest position because they want stability of their work, absolutely. So before, uh, during, I will often ring orthodontists and uh, dentists and talk to them and then when we're finished. Um, also the ENTs because uh, we have to make sure that we're not... Uh, that it's it's really quite easy for kids to breathe through their nose that they don't have anything that's really obstructing uh, their nasal airway and making it very difficult. And some kids find that really difficult, then they might need to have a consult with the ENT first. So there's lots of communication and there should be. So it's quite quite a an important relationship that we have. So where can speech pathologists go for further training in this space? Well, you know, if you look online, there's lots of orofacial myology programs, training programs um, for many days on end with um, all sorts of different people. But um, we have, again, as a profession, we have a lot of skills and knowledge already And so you don't need to have any specific training to do orofacial myology. Um, There are certainly organisations that require you to be members of their association, like the Australian Association of Orofacial Myologists and the International Association of Orofacial Myology, who want you to do a credentialed course. But I think we have a lot of skills in that area, but they are the sorts of areas you would look at if you wanted to do a, a, a course that's specifically designed for that. Um, other people are getting into the area of orofacial myology, so dental hygienists, nurses, and things like that. So you don't have to be a speech pathologist to do that at all. In fact, most of them aren't. Right, I have noticed there are more and more speech pathologists though that are promoting uh, their skills in this area more so than I would say 10 years ago. Have you noticed that, that it is something that is becoming more 
commonly um, a more common treatment approach that speech pathologists are offering? Yeah, I definitely noticed that when you do a little search, there's lots of speeches doing this uh, sort of space. And I think it's a good thing because, again, it's it's not a communication, you know, like like most aspects of speech pathology, but it is that, interestingly, that other end of swallowing, isn't it? You know, speech pathology and swallowing, we do. And so this is the other end of that, if you like, orofacial biology, which often is the tongue thrust swallow. So we do have a lot of skills in that area. So I think that's a good thing uh, because we can um, help uh, another group of people establish the outcomes that they that they wish. Um, remember that we're not dentists, we're not uh, orthodontists. We we contribute to the knowledge by those practitioners to help uh, in their journey for the what the clients wish to achieve. So um, we're we're not trying to do dental work um, or anything like that. We have to be very careful. Uh, what we say to clients in terms of what uh, what the outcomes might be. So, uh, but it's it's an interesting space for us to get get in. Again, it's just you know the profession is forever um, arching out into different areas, which I think's one of the exciting things that's kept me in the profession for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, thank you so very much for joining me, Vince. It's been an absolute pleasure and so interesting. And I also wanted to give you a big shout out and thank you for your 40 years of dedicated service to speech (laughs) pathology. That is a massive achievement and deserves an absolutely massive congratulations. So so (laughs) thank thank you you for that as well also. Thank thank you very much, Attica. It's been a, a a very wonderful journey and I think you you get told it's been a real privilege and it really is it it just every day when you're seeing kids it's uh, where you can impact their lives um, in so many ways kids and adults it's it really is a, a, a wonderful profession really so good luck to all of those uh, within it yeah absolutely and thank you so much for everyone for tuning in have a fantastic week ahead and we look forward to being back in your ears again next wednesday thank you so much vince thank you we hope you enjoyed this week's conversation be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues you can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.